Amen. Your God is gracious and merciful. So take comfort in knowing that through the death, the resurrection of your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by faith in his name, your sins are washed away. I'm going to read to you from 1 Peter chapter 1, a passage that uh, many of you probably read this morning in your own personal devotions. It's a passage of scripture that uh, Ben will open for us in just a moment. The apostle says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade. The word of our God will stand forever. Well, good morning, everybody. Y'all look kind of chipper, like you slept well. Sure. Those were like sleep number mattresses with only one number. (laughs) Firmest setting. But I was so tired, uh, I don't even remember falling asleep. It was great. So we'll see how the week goes from there. So we're going to pray in just a minute uh, for what's about to happen. Uh, There's a Paul says something in Romans 10. He says, uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. If you want to know how God plans to uh, grow you and increase your faith, it's through things like what we're about to do. Um, But we need him to open our ears. Our ears clog very quickly, and our hearts grow cold very quickly. And so um, he is not just kind enough to teach us, but he's kind enough to enable us to hear him and understand him. So uh, would you join me in, in praying for just a minute? Father, we are grateful uh, to be gathered here this morning. We know that none of us is here by accident. No matter the weird ways we ended up here, whether it makes sense, we wanted to come and we came, or we didn't want to come and someone made us come or asked us to come, or any other weird way, uh, behind those ways stands you, who has personally called each of these brothers and sisters here this week. And Lord, we thank you for that. We pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you would come and commune with us 
as you promise to do and as you say you love to do. You are not an unwilling or eye-rolling participant in, in our worship of you this morning. You are more than any of us happy to be here. You more than any of us are more in this moment than we are. And so let your joy be contagious and become our joy, please. I'll let your love become contagious and become our love for you. We ask this all in your name with great hope. Amen. Thanks. I'm a wanderer, so I may take this off in a minute. I've been told to stay behind these, my, these uh, speakers up here, so if your ears start bleeding, okay, we're good. Okay. Um, so every, every October, all of the RUF groups, the college ministry that I'm a part of, all of the RUF groups in Colorado, New Mexico, and West Texas, we go to the mountains of northern New Mexico. It looks kind of like this. And we get together for uh, our fall conference, which is a lot like this week except crammed into three days, like over a three-day weekend in October. And the schools that come to that are Colorado State up in Fort Collins, Colorado, uh, Texas Tech from Lubbock, Texas, my school, New Mexico State down in Las Cruces, and then the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. So people kind of like you all from all of those schools are coming together. And we get together, and Saturday is the best day of fall conference because Saturday is kind of our free day. We do this in the morning, and then from noon until like 6 is our free day, which means that's when the paintball tournament, the epic paintball tournament for fall conference happens every year. And this thing's been going on about five years now, and so there's a lot of trash talk and a lot of bad memories from years past. But because I'm not dumb and because I don't like pain, uh, I went to the campus minister of the Texas Tech team beforehand, and I said, hey, we should play you guys the first round of paintball, knowing that that would leave the poor Colorado State kids to face the U.S. Air Force Academy cadets. <laughs> and so we have the first two-hour block of these back-to-back -back paintball games, and, um, and we have a great time. This is the most amazing paintball field you've ever seen. I'm not an airsoft guy or a paintball guy, but I like fell in love with it. It's like about the size of a football field, Half of the course is an aspen grove. The other half has like a granite cliff the side of a mountain to it. It's got a stream going through the middle. It's got like chest high grass so you could alligator crawl through the mud and, and hide places. They've built like little tunnels and little, little caves throughout the course. So it's amazing. Lots of places to hide. So we have a blast with Texas Tech. And then when our two hour chunk is done, walk down come the road these, uh, these 10 U.S. Air Force Academy cadets, they've selected the cream of the crop, the special forces of the U.S. Air Force RUF. And uh, they looked just like you, so innocent, so friendly, so jovial a couple of hours before, and now they're like stone-faced, full camo, some of them have war paint on their face. <laughs> and uh, I'm watching the faces of the Colorado State kids, and it's just this, it's like a sheep before the slaughter. They're like just this sense of doom, is it too late to back out? And it's not. So they're all loading up their paint and everything and about to go out on, out on the field. And they go out on the course, and the referee says, here's the objective, everybody. There is a flag in the middle of this course, and you have 20 minutes to get this flag back to this base or this base. That's the objective. If you get the flag back to your base, you win the round, and then you'll play another couple of rounds after that. And so referee blows his whistle. And it's game on. And like the rest of us who've already played, we knew this was going to probably be a bloodbath. So all of us were like faces pressed up against the netting on the side. He blows his whistle, and immediately five of those ten cadets stack themselves up shoulder to shoulder so that each guy's body is 
providing cover for the next guy. And they like stack themselves up and it's like boop, 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 just spraying the this, this Colorado State side of the field. They'll do that for about 15 seconds and then they stop. And it's like a game of like, uh, what do they call that, gopher or something. Like as soon as a Colorado kid pokes his head up to see where they are, boom, he's out. They wait. Another kid pokes his head around a tree to see where they are, boom, he's gone. And they do this for about a minute. Now about a minute and a half into the game, we're all on the side there and we don't know what's happening. We just, we're seeing some really cool stuff happen and we're like, sorry for you guys, but I see an arm reach out of the grass and grab the flag. And the second this kid grabs the flag, he stands up, just in, like in broad daylight, he's not trying to hide anymore, stands up and runs back to his base. And the second he stands up to run back, the other five cadets who, as of this point, have been hidden, no one's known where they are, pop out of like a tree house, two more out of the grass, <laughs> and all of them, ten people, just hold their hand on the trigger, and it's a paint bath <laughs> on the other side of the field. They couldn't shoot back at this guy who has the flag and is about to win the game if they wanted to. It's just they're fully just getting lit up from every direction from these U.S. Air Force Academy cadets. Now, uh, there was a few things I was feeling at that moment. One, um, Lee Greenwood's Proud to Be an American was coming to my head, and I was like, I feel very safe that these are the people uh, that we're paying to take care of us. They have, uh, they have been trained well. Um, I also felt bad and vindicated for choosing to go against Texas Tech. But the third and important thing, the reason I'm telling you this story is I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm starting to wonder what is it that explains how, not in 20 minutes, but in 2 minutes and 20 seconds, with 17 and a half minutes to spare, this team crushed that team. And, and I wanted to dig a little bit deeper than just they're, they're, they're trained or they had better, they had the same equipment as everybody else. They, yeah, they've had training in that, but not specific paintball training. So what explained the difference between the cadets and the Colorado State kids? Here's, here's what I thought, and I want you to remember this phrase because it's going to be really important for this morning and for the rest of the week. The reason the cadets dominated and the reason the Colorado kids flopped out, didn't make it got demoralized, gave up after like two rounds because they didn't want to play anymore. The reason is this, situational awareness. Situational awareness. Situational awareness means that at any given moment, you are fully aware of everything around you. You're, you're aware and alert to your surroundings. So think about those Air Force cadets. Situational awareness in that game meant that these five cadets here they knew where their teammates were, not just the guys next to them. They knew there was five more hidden over there, ready to have their back when they needed it. They knew there was a guy alligator crawling through the grass and the mud to get the flag, so they were covering him. They knew where the obstacles were. Don't go that way, there's a high, a high hill we'll slip on. Don't go that way, there's water, go this way. They were aware of the objective and how to accomplish the objective. Here's our plan. That's the flag, we got to get it there, but how do we do it? Here's how we're going to do it. They were aware of the enemy positions, right? And they were aware of their massive superiority, so they had a little bit of fun with it. But they're aware of like every, every little place the Colorado State kids are, there's one, boom, he's out. There's one, boom, he's out. Conversely, the Colorado State crowd, the reason they lost in such an epic bloodbath in two and a half minutes was a lack, a total lack of situational awareness. They never talked about where their teammates were going to be. They didn't know where their teammates were going to be. 
And so it's an every man for himself mentality or every girl for herself mentality. So if you decide to go run for the flag, you have no idea where your teammates are and whether they're going to cover you or not. Nor do you know where half of the enemy force is. Nor do you know where the obstacles are or you don't have a plan for how to accomplish the objective, how to get that flag back to your base. Situational awareness was the reason the cadets won and the reason the Colorado kids lost. That's what explained it all. Now, uh, you don't need me to tell you this. Life is no silly paintball game. The ammo is real, it's live action, it's real consequence. You bleed when you get hit by the stuff of life. You don't just bruise. Um, but the same kinds of things happen. If situational awareness is this important and this decisive on a silly little paintball field for a two minute game, how much more important is it on a real battlefield? How much more important is it in life that you would be aware, alert to your surroundings at any given moment, the resources that you have at your disposal, the people at your disposal to help you, enemies, threats, dangers, temptations, obstacles, to be aware of, the, of your objective and how you're going to accomplish it at any given moment. How important must that be just in everyday life? It's crucial. It's of utmost importance. It explains why uh, it explains why some seasons in our life we walk or we run, and some seasons in our life we crawl and we fall. I think it has a lot to do with this situational awareness stuff. It's that important. Now, here's the thing. I don't think it's a stretch at all. You'll find this out this week as you read through the book of 1 Peter. It's not a stretch to say that Peter's letter to the Christians in Turkey that he's writing to uh, is a manual in situational awareness. Because this is the book where Peter will talk about the unseen threats that surround you. There's a devil out there prowling around waiting to devour some of you. Be on guard. This is where he talks about the resources God has surrounded you with. His grace, his mercy, his protection, his presence, his church, your pastors, your elders, your brothers and sisters, your teammates. This is the book Peter's going to talk about the obstacles that will get in your way and make you slip or bog you down or block you. This is the place Peter will talk about tactics and objectives, about how we accomplish our mission, our objective, in a Christian life that happens, like I said last night, in a place called exile. We'll unpack that term exile over the next like six or seven talks, so we're not going to just do a, a blunt definition now. We'll, we'll come at it piece by piece. But, but Peter's letter, the thing you're going to be reading every morning in your devotions, is a manual in situational awareness, opening your eyes to what is already true all the way around you, for better, for harder. That's what this is. Now, first, the, the, the passage that Patrick just read, how Peter starts his manual, his situational awareness manual or training guide for these Christians. How does he start it? Well, he starts it by giving these Christians their bearings, putting some landmarks around them and pointing them out so that they'll know where they are. Now, why did these Christians need to hear this? Why did they need Peter to start his letter this way? Well, the reason why, you might have read it in the little blurb that was um, put out a, a few months ago um, about this conference. There's a little blurb about what these Christians were going through. Um, but these Christians, basically, if you could live life in their skin, here's how you would have felt. You would have felt like you had fallen off the map. 
and that God had lost sight of you, maybe. Um, maybe that you didn't know where you were or where you were going. Have you, ever, have you ever had a situation where you can't find where you are on a map? Or the modern day equivalent of that, GPS signal lost, right? <laughs> the problem with that isn't just that it's annoying and frustrating, it's scary because if you don't know where you are on the map, you don't know whether every step you're taking is getting you more found or more lost, right? You don't know whether the direction you're going is towards help or away from help. You don't know if you're uh, getting in more trouble or less trouble. And then you have the psychological weight of, of just not knowing where you are and where you're going. Imagine what that feels like in your life. You ever been at a place in your life where you don't know where you are? You don't know if God knows where you are. Uh, as of yet, there's not been a sermon or a message or a person you've talked to that seems to get your address or your coordinates right now. You're lost. And you don't know every day you wake up whether that's going to be a day that brings you back towards hope and healing or further away from it. That's where these Christians were living life. They, they were wondering, are our prayers bouncing off the ceiling? Does God see us? Does he know where we are? Geographically, they were far from where God seemed to be doing really cool stuff in other people. You ever felt that too? God seems to be doing the coolest stuff in all those people around you, but not in you. These, these, these Christians are in modern-day Turkey, long, 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 long way away from Jerusalem. The epicenter of Judaism, the epicenter of the church, where Pentecost happened, the Spirit was poured out on the church. And they're a long way from Rome, where Peter is at this time, and later some of the other apostles. So they feel, they feel far from God's best work. They feel a little bit off the map at the edges of where the really great stuff is happening they feel, um, they feel like he's far away. And they're confused about what's happening. If you want to know, again, like what exile feels like, so you can, you can kind of begin to identify places in your life where you're really tasting that flavor of exile. Exile feels the opposite of what your inheritance in Jesus is. So go back to this passage and look at verse 4. Exile feels like the opposite of that inheritance. He says our inheritance is imperishable. Exile, you feel very perishable. You feel like you have a shelf life that expired three months ago. You're dry. You wonder if you can keep going. Peter says our inheritance, we are undefiled. In exile, you feel very defiled. You feel very dirty. You have an orphan mentality. Peter says our inheritance is unfading. In exile, you feel very much like you're fading fast. Peter says our inheritance is being kept by God's power, guarded for a salvation waiting to be revealed. In exile, you don't feel like you're guarded and protected with a secret service detail around you. You feel alone and vulnerable and weak and fragile. That's what these Christians were feeling to some extent. I'm not saying every single second of every single day they were down in the dumps like that. There is plenty of evidence in this letter that this was more like a roller coaster than just a, a, a walk through the valley. But that's where these people were living life. And so that's why Peter starts his letter the way he does. Really quick, why do we have the book of 1 Peter? I don't know for sure. I would imagine that someone from one of these churches or someone heard secondhand about one of these churches that they were in a really rough spot. These are Gentile believers, which means they didn't grow up in any church. They don't have some long pedigree of learning the Bible. And this is not familiar to them. It's new. It's weird still. Um, and, and 
there's this burst of excitement at first, and now there's this, man, we're being ostracized. No one comes to our restaurants. No one does business with my parents because they're Christians. We don't have any seats on the city council. No one will elect us. We're the laughing stock of the town. We're the, we're the, the village idiots. And Peter gets word that these new believers who, who are alive in God now are experiencing that kind of place, that kind of situation. And so Peter probably runs off and, and pens this letter and hands it to some courier, and he says, take this to them now. So how does he start his letter? He puts them on the map first geographically. Now, you might know this already, but the way people started letters back in the day was different than us. Like, you would say, dear Ben, how's the weather in Westcliff? Back in the day, they would have said, I, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the saints in Westcliff, how's the weather? But this is a little bit different than how Paul and the other writers of Scripture start their letters. Peter has put their geography in a gospel sandwich. Right before it, he calls them elect exiles. Right after, he talks about how they're foreknown, chosen in God, sanctified by the Spirit, sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. And weirdly, weirdly, right in between that and that, he's talking about their mailing address. Why? For the very reasons I just said. When you are at a place where you think you're invisible to God, he doesn't see you, he doesn't hear you, he doesn't even know where you are. How encouraging would it be to receive a letter from the Apostle Peter who will say in his other letter that no scripture is written by man but through, by the Holy Spirit through men. You had a letter from God to your address, zip code and all, your GPS coordinates. This is the gospel in geography. Peter is saying in Pontus, in Galatian, Bithynia. And they're saying, he knows where we are. Even just that, he knows we exist. You know on an elevator they have that little button with a fireman hat on it that you're supposed to push if you get stuck? You know what the other button is right next to it? Or the other little light? It's a call received light. Why is that light there? Because imagine if it wasn't. You are stranded on an elevator, it's getting hot, and you're jamming that button, and you have no earthly idea whether that's a fake little button just someone put there to give you hope. You have no idea whether it actually got through to someone who's at work that day or is going to get the call. You start to panic. You start to freak out. You start to rip the ceiling panels off to try to scale up the wall. You go nuts. They put that light in there so that you know your call was received Help is on the way. Peter starts his letter. It's, it's this giant call-received light for Christians. God has heard your cry for help. And here is a letter from the living God that's been dumped in your mailbox. Wherever you are doing life right now, that's where this letter, that's where the gospel, that's where God's grace meets you. You don't have to travel far to find God. You have to open your eyes. Peter starts with a geographic gospel, but then he moves into a much deeper, um, even spiritual sense of this gospel, that God knows uh, where we do life. Peter puts them back on the map. They've lost their spiritual bearings to some extent. They remember some stuff, just like we do when we're in hard spots. We remember, okay, God is sovereign, okay, he loves me. But emotionally, that's harder to believe than the... This hurts. This is confusing. Why is he still letting this happen? I've prayed a ton about this. Why am I still struggling with this sin? So Peter starts to put them back on the map spiritually 
as well. And he does this, he does this by, um, by basically saying to us, we have got to start thinking about ourselves the way God thinks about you. There's this big disparity in all of our lives that the way I think about me is usually really different than the way God thinks about me. Um, I'll ask my students this question a lot because I need to be asked this question a lot. I'll ask them. We're talking about something, maybe a place of shame that they just revealed or a struggle that they're going through or just whatever else, something going wrong in their lives. And I'll ask them, what is God thinking about you right now? Sometimes they'll say, he's just, he's so sick. He, he can't believe I'm still here. Like, I'm still at this place. I haven't gotten better. I haven't moved on. Like, I don't get it. Light bulb hadn't gone off. Um, or he rolls his eyes. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit gossip you behind your back. Um, or, or he's just, he's kind of just sitting here like I am, like, I'll, I'll pray for you. Maybe one day you'll come around. No. Peter is, is putting a head-on collision with you and God, what he thinks about you, to change what you think about you. And Peter starts this way. Here's what God thinks of his people. First, you are elect. You're elect, which means chosen, which means selected, which means set apart. But here's what it really means at a street level. It means there is nothing at all accidental about God's grace for you. There is nothing accidental or haphazard about it. There is nothing last minute or an, as an afterthought. It means, your election means that God made the first move towards you and still makes the first moves towards you, not you. We love him because he first loved us. God came to us. He didn't shout from heaven, you come to me. That's what our election means. It means that there was this eternal conspiracy to rescue you. It was methodically planned, thought out. The cost was counted, just as Jesus tells us to, cost, to count the cost before we go on some mission. And it was executed and it was accomplished, which means you were foreknown. There is nothing accidental or haphazard. This is serious business, your election. And it means, it means this, too. I thought of this while we were singing earlier. Our, it's weird with our culture now um, what, what qualifies for celebrity status or what warrants, like, the historians all, like, going and researching a person and writing a bunch of books or ESPN, the 30 for 30 thing, where they're like, let's focus on this guy or this athlete and do a whole expose on him. What would it be like if the world knew, if the world saw your name written in the book of life, and they knew everything that I just said, and they were able to perceive that God has literally moved heaven and earth to rescue you. Not getting individualistic here, but this is an application of your election. You are elected. We are elected as a people. But what would they, what would they think? How many journalists would start calling you? How many historians would ask for time with you to interview you? It would be a lot because Peter even says later on, angels long to look into these things. God saving you, us. What would the world think? At first, you would be the object of their study. What is it about you? Why did he choose you? Why you? And very quickly, their research would get shot right back to God and say, the reason lies in him. Because this person is just like all these other people, right? So the research turns around on a dime and winds up right back at God. 
Here's my question for you. There's this first word, elect. Is that how you think about you? Or do you feel like an accidental addition to the kingdom of God? Do you feel like an afterthought? You're the runt of the litter. Do you feel forgotten? You feel like you're always the one having to make the first move towards God. If you do, God is showing up in your business this morning to mess with you and to wrestle with you and to say life will come when you think about you the way I think about you right this minute, not in eternity past, not now, now. He says right after that, after the, uh, when he goes through their, their cities, they're living, and he says, you are sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to the Son, which means a lot of stuff, some of which we'll talk about in the, in the next few messages, but at least it means this, that you, as a Christian, have been invaded by no one less than the Spirit of the living God. He has established a beachhead in your life. You're not... I don't know like, if that term makes sense to you, a beachhead, like in World War II, if you wanted to conquer an island, you had to have a little piece of that turf to move out from. The spirit of Jesus has, has invaded you and set up a beachhead in your life. He has conquered you, he has liberated you, and he is working out that liberty, working out that freedom in every little nook and cranny of your life for the rest of your life. That's what it means that you are sanctified by the spirit. You have been set aside for a special purpose, a special mission. You're the special forces of the world. We could say that. You have a very narrow, very specific purpose and calling for your salvation we'll talk about tonight. You have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ, which means you have been dedicated to him, set apart for him, sealed to him. Let me, try, let me throw a few other things at you of what this means at an on-the-ground, street, emotional level. Your election, your sanctification, your sprinkling. And everything else Peter says right after that. It means this. You're not an old, crusty, dried-up person in whom God's best works are in the past. You're new. You're alive. You've been born again. Everything is new. It is fresh in your life. It means you don't have a fading hope, but a living hope, which means your life is in permanent sunrise mode, not sunset mode. Your life is in sunrise mode, not sunset mode. It's a living hope, not a dying hope. You have an indestructible inheritance, not a perishable but fragile one that you have to guard like the ring in Lord of the Rings, your precious. You have to set it out. You have to cling to it, protect it, because what if something happens to it? God is protecting it. He is your guard. He is the Wells Fargo guard right there, guarding it, making sure nothing touches this inheritance. You're not far from God, but you belong to him. You're near to him. And you're not lost, aimless, or wandering. You are pursued, chased, known, and adored. So here's kind of the second part of this passage that we'll begin to wrap up on. What makes us forget all the stuff I've just talked about? Either One of a couple of things is going through your mind right now. Either I've heard all this before, which if that's what's going through your mind, listen to what we're about to talk about. Or you might be thinking, oh, wow, this is a really encouraging refresher course in what is already true of me. Um, but why is it so easy to forget? Why do we have to get out of town, come to things like this, and intensely focus on it for a week just to kind of warm our minds and our hearts back up? 
I think it's because of the second word, the second label Peter slaps on the people of God, which wasn't new. Peter didn't invent this metaphor that the people of God are living in exile. It was literally there since the second we left Eden. There's a sense of homelessness that God's people have always had. This angsty longing, like, I'm not where I should be. I was made for something else. Peter is picking up that metaphor that's been woven through the entire Bible when, he's, when he calls us elect exiles. But he calls us exiles. And here's why I think we forget the elect part, which I'm going to kind of use as, a, as an umbrella term for all that's true about you because of what Jesus has done and the Spirit has done and the Father has done. Why do we forget it so easily? Because of this exile thing, it, which we could say when your situation in life stinks, we forget all of that, usually. Right? Are you with me? Is that true of you too, or am I making a confession that <laughs> no one's going to nod to? That's true of all of us, right? When our situation stinks, we get obsessed with our situation, the pain, the confusion, the frustration of it, and we lose sight of all of these other things. Here's another way at it. We lose sight of the gospel when our circumstances don't preach the gospel to us. We lose sight of the gospel when our surroundings and our situations don't preach good news to us anymore. Guys, it's easy to believe that God loves you when your friendships are thriving and people want to be your friend and there's no drama and life at home is great and you know where you want to go to college and what you want to major in. It's a little harder when home is not a refuge. It's a war zone between your parents. It's a little bit harder when you feel like the outcast of every, you feel like a pin, pinball. Every friend group around, you get punched back out to the next one. You're a wanderer relationally. It's a little bit harder when spiritual life's a little bit more complicated than you thought it would be. When, when, you're, when your surroundings, when your circumstances, when your emotions don't preach gospel to you, it's harder to believe it, right? It's harder to believe everything we just spent time talking about it. We lose sight of it. And this means, if you experience this, this means you're normal. Because Israel, throughout the Old Testament, this was their pattern. You know how many days after they had... God had literally said to an ocean, water here, you go over there, you go over there, my people are going through the dry land in between you. How many days after that had they started asking the question, did God bring us into the desert to murder us? Three days. Their clothes weren't dry. <laughs> They're still seeing bodies of Egyptian soldiers, the superpower of the world, wash up on the shore, and, and they're already wondering, is God killing me? Then they go on to the desert, and that's the, that's the refrain of 40 years in the wilderness, is God brought us out here to kill us. Their situation isn't preaching gospel. Well, it kind of was. I mean, they were delivered out of death into resurrection life in the promised land, right? But their situation at the present moment, at that day, wasn't good. And so they, they, they couldn't see all this stuff about Israel. You're my, own, you're my firstborn son. You're my elect. They lost sight of that because their surroundings and their circumstances and their emotions weren't preaching good news to them anymore. It was bad. It was hard. So they forgot about it. Same thing happened to Israel during exile. Go read the Psalms one time and see how Israel was, was wrestling, trying to wrap their head around how bad life had become, how much it hurt. And the Christians in the New Testament are prone to do this too, and you and I are as well. So this makes you fit in the family of God, and this is the kind of stuff uh, that you uh, experience. 
Does God still seem sweet and good and precious and all valuable to you when life falls apart? Or does he seem bland and mean and even evil when bad things happen? That's what I'm talking about here. Does suffering make you lose situational awareness? It could have the opposite effect. You know, those Colorado State kids pinned down under heavy fire, that suffering, that trial that they were going through could, uh, that could have kind of turned the light bulbs on for them. We need to regroup, and we need to develop a strategy, and we need to be aware of where our resources are and what the objective is, or it could have just ended where it did, where they all get picked off uh, one by one. When your surroundings don't preach the gospel to you, are you still able to believe it? Are you able to put more weight in what God thinks about you and says about you than what you or your surroundings or your life right now says about you? That's what Peter is talking about. Here's where we'll end, and I'll give you a story. We forget, and we get into a lot of trouble and a lot of hurt when we separate these two things that God has joined together, elect exiles. Peter says, you are, this is your identity, you are an elect exile. And what God has joined together, let no one tear apart. But we tear it apart all the time. And we see either one or the other. We make, we make what is a three-dimensional or a multi-dimensional Christian life into a one-dimensional thing. We either have a very simplistic understanding of the Bible, the gospel, and faith. And we say, I belong to God, therefore good things will happen to me. Do you know how many 18-year-olds I've spoken to when they show up at college who have left the faith because suffering happened? Life got complicated. And they didn't know how to hold these two things together, elect exiles. All they, had, all they understood was the elect part, and they didn't even really understand that. They just thought it meant, and so did Israel, by the way. They said, if God is faithful to us, if he loves us, why are we out here with no refrigerators, no food, no pantries? We're exposed to all the elements. If he loves us, why this? The Christians, the, the Christians in Turkey were feeling this way. If he's for us, then why do we feel so alone? When we separate these two things, elect exiles, and we, when we begin to see the Christian life in a simplistic, black and white, one-dimensional way, an unnecessary amount of confusion comes into your life. And you start turning some accusational questions back towards God. Are you even good? Or are you after me? Are you conspiring for my good or are you conspiring for my harm? Friends, we'll flesh this out in the coming, in the coming talks, but here's the deal. Elect and exile are overlapping simultaneously real, simultaneous realities for you. They're both 100% true of you in this life. They're always true. There's not a time when you're not in exile. There's not a time when you're not elect. They're both always true. And we have to see the Christian life as a multi-dimensional, deep thing. Not a paper cutout, one-dimensional thing. Here's a story to bring this down to earth, and we're done. I saw this um, exhibit a couple of weeks ago, and I'm not an art guy, and I'm like, I, I can make it through a museum in about 20 seconds. But I saw this exhibit, and it did what good art is supposed to do. I just stood there, and I was amazed. I've, I don't think I've ever done this with art before. I, I couldn't leave. I was just looking at it, staring at it, being like, this is brilliant. What it was, was some artist, he had a gallery full of about 20 of these, and what he had done in each of these little sculptures, 
is it was this rectangular block about seven feet tall, about two feet deep, two feet wide. And what he had done is taken about 20 panes of glass. And he had each, uh, each individual pane of glass had a different kind of matrix on it or a different set of splatters or different colors or different silhouette shapes or whatever. And each pane individually, you couldn't tell what it was. It looked silly, it looked stupid, it didn't make sense, it looked bad. You're like, what's this pane of glass with black speckles on it? What's this weird circular shape over here with red dots on the bottom? Like, this doesn't make sense, it's confusing, it, you dismiss it. This guy then went and took those 20 panes of glass, each with their own special painting or picture or splatter on it, and he pressed them together, he laminated them together. And so when you looked, when you stood here and looked into this glass, you saw this brilliant, three-dimensional, full of color uh, form of a human being. Just, it feels like you could reach your arm in it and grab pieces of it. And then it all made sense how this pain fits with that pain and how this pain makes sense of this pain. And only when they're all put together does this make sense. Does beauty come? Does meaning come? Does loveliness come? Only when they're laminated together and you see the different layers simultaneously. When you, if you lifted out one pane at a time and looked at it, it would make no sense. If you lift suffering and salvation apart from each other, if you lift, lift your exile, if you look at your exile, the trials, the temptations, the hardships in this life in isolation, you will see a one-dimensional confusing, boring, doesn't make sense, looks ugly kind of Christian life. If you do that even with the gospel, but you can't see how it's still true in the midst of all those things, you'll have a one-dimensional simplistic faith that will be tested and tried. This week is about looking through these sculptures with all of these dimensions and these depths and these colors and seeing beauty that God is still good when there's dark speckles over here or black stuff over here or confusion over here. He is still for you in the midst of all of this. That's the gospel. It is multi-dimensional. It is brilliant. And it deserves our attention. Let's pray that you continue to open our eyes to see these things. Lord Jesus, um, we pray, Could it? Is it too much to ask that when we leave this week that we would see the gospel as that, as that sculpture looking through all of the different layers, would you help us to see them at the same time, not one only or one over here only, but two and three and four at the same time. Help us to see the full picture of what you have done in us and what you are doing and what you will do in us by your grace. We ask this all in your name, Lord. Amen.